Hello, memoir readers and writers. I've added some new merchandise to the Let's Talk Memoir store. I've got travel mugs and t-shirts and post-it notes and tote bags and all kinds of goodies for you and your favorite memoir lover. You can find a link to the Let's Talk Memoir store in three places, the show notes at the podcast app where you listen, my Instagram, which is at Ronit Plank in the bio, and that's a great place to get updates on the show anyway, so I hope you'll visit and then follow me, and also at ronitplank.com on the main page and also on the Let's Talk Memoir page. I am having a great time designing some of these items, but if you visit the store and you have an idea for something that you don't see there, please message me on Instagram or you can contact me on my website and I will make it for you. And all throughout January 2024, I am keeping this survey about how you listen to Let's Talk Memoir and what kind of memoir content you'd like open. So you can also find the link for that survey. It's about 10 questions in the show notes and chime in so I can start designing episodes for you with you in mind. And now on to the show. Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Kelly McMasters. She is an essayist, professor, mother, and former bookshop owner. She is the author of the Zibby Book Club pick, The Leaving Season, a memoir in essays, and co-editor of the ABA national bestseller, Wanting, Women Writing About Desire. Her first book, Welcome to Shirley, a memoir from an atomic town, was listed as one of Oprah's top five summer memoirs and is the basis for the documentary film The Atomic States of America, a 2012 Sundance selection, and the anthology she co-edited with Margot Kahn, This is the Place, Women Writing About Home, was a New York Times editor's choice. Her essays, reviews, and articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, the Washington Post Magazine, the Paris Review, the American Scholar, River Teeth, a Journal of Narrative Nonfiction, Tin House, Newsday, and Time Out New York, among others. She holds a BA from Vassar College and an MFA in nonfiction writing from Columbia School of the Arts and is the recipient of a Pushcart nomination and an Orion Book Award nomination. Kelly has spoken about creative nonfiction at TEDx, authors at Google, and more, and has taught at MediaBistro.com, Franklin and Marshall College, and in the Undergraduate Writing Program in Journalism, Graduate School at Columbia University, among others. She is currently an Associate Professor of English and Director of Publishing Studies at Hofstra, Hofstra <laughs> University in New York. Oh my gosh, Kelly, I just, I, I can't even, the, the things that you do, welcome <laughs> Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir. Thank you so, so much. I'm so excited to be here and to talk memoir, my favorite thing of everything. Oh, gosh, I'm so happy that you're here. And actually, last night, my son, I have two kids, they're teenagers, people who listen to the show know this. But we had a small family discussion because our dinners get shorter and shorter, the older they get, believe it or not, because they just want to get out of there. But my son said, could someone write multiple memoirs? And I was like, I'm so glad you asked, um, but, <laughs> but that's a story for another time. So can you share a little bit about the leaving season? 
Absolutely. Uh, so The Leaving Season is exactly as you described it. It's a memoir and essays, which I think is an important place to begin. And these essays are my way of trying to move through the experience of leaving. And by leaving, I mean leaving a relationship, leaving jobs, leaving homes, leaving ideas of ourselves, uh, such as childhood or what I thought my life or what my marriage was going to be like. And also one critical part, which was sort of the beginning of thinking about this as a book, leaving the bookshop that I opened, a small bookshop in rural Pennsylvania, where part of my heart still is. Mm, yeah. How long? I don't think I totally got that or maybe I didn't pay enough attention, but how long did you have the bookshop? Oh, sure. Uh, the bookshop was short in time span. It was less than two years that I had it. And I think it was something that I, I worked on as a series called Notes from a Bookshop for the Paris Review. And I never finished the series because it was just too painful to say on paper at the time that we were closing. And so that's what I meant by, it felt like an unfinished story. And when I came back to finish it, that's when the rest of all of these other leavings kind of piled on top of it. Yeah, I mean, it's really palpable. The the sense, you know, sometimes when you read a book, it's beyond, I mean, hopefully it's when you read a book, this is what I want is the sense that I was there or maybe got to embody a little bit the experience of the writer. And when I think about your book, which of course I finished fairly recently, it's now reverberating a little bit within me and the different iterations of maybe who you were and your time and place in the world and your relationship. And I mean, it's just, you really, that is one of the aspects of your writing that I so appreciate. And it's so hard to capture, I think, when we're first beginning as writers. So you mentioned in your acknowledgments that this book was 10 years in the making. And I'm so glad you pointed out that the, the idea that this is a memoir and essays is significant. Because when I first started reading memoir, I didn't understand the whole memoir and essay concept. So I'd love to talk a bit about what it's like to put a collection like this together. And I'm wondering if, if you had to winnow material down to negotiate different aspects of your story that you were going to include as a whole in here. Did you change any of these separate essays so they'd work more collectively? or did you leave them intact as they first appeared? So uh, just have at that question, which is incredibly multifaceted. Absolutely. And I love talking about the ways that these essays began and then reshaped and reformed as the book moved on. So this book was 10 years in the making in that when I, the first thing that I wrote was probably about 10 years ago. That did not mean that it was a book at that time. I did not realize that I was writing a book. It was just an essay in my mind. And I would say about a quarter of the pieces that are in here were published previously before I knew that I was actually working on a book. Mm -hmm. And those absolutely, my, my hope is that anybody who read them the first time, and Margot, who is my co-editor for those two anthologies, is a great reader and I was very happy when she read this book that one of her comments was, I know I've read some of these essays before, and it felt like I'd never read them before because mm. they were changed so dramatically. Oh, and, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was, I think that's that's a mark of that I was doing my job. Mm. And I, I think mostly because, as I explain in my classroom to my students, right, first draft, you are just sort of 
throwing stuff at the wall. <laughs> and I think especially for this book, for me, I really needed to get all the way to the end to understand even what it was that I was writing about. Uh, initially, the title was The Ghosts in the Hills, which is a title of one of the essays. At the end of that first draft, I was able to go back to the beginning, understand that what I thought I was writing about, which essentially was isolation, a feeling of, of moving like a ghost through your life, these types of feelings was really much more focused on the act of leaving, hmm. uh, the search for a home, and so I was able to then start over from the first sentence and really begin that trajectory from the first sentence to the last sentence with mm. intention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and so that they work individually, you could read e each one of these sections, each one of these essays and have a greater understanding of who you are and, and what you're trying to convey. But then as a whole, they really do work in concert. And I wondered, what was it like to structure it? Sure. So I think I started, it was always meant to be in three parts and sort of directed by landscape. However, initially that third landscape right now, it is the city. That's where we begin. Then we move to the country and then we end in the suburbs. Mm. Initially, when we uh, worked on this proposal, it was beginning in the city, moving to the country and ending in the Arctic, which I know sounds insane. <laughs> 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 that that is where uh, my research and passion was at that point in time. It was 2019. I had just returned from a research trip to Svalbard, which is near the North Pole. And I had this uh, amazing opportunity through Fulbright to go to Norway for a year and continue that research. Of course, we all know what happened after 2019. Yeah. So that <laughs> really shifted mm. and changed after the book was sold. And mm -hmm. I'm, although I can't say that I'm just glad that that happened, but mm -hmm. I do believe that this is the structure that the book needed. Uh, I was in a conversation with my editor, Jill Bialowski, who is brilliant and terrifying and amazing. And <laughs> yeah, I think you wrote, you wrote that in your acknowledgments too. Yes. I love that. <laughs> in all of, and I mean every word. Um, and she was asking me about, well, where, you know, what's your life like now? Where are you living? And I'm pretty sure I rolled my eyes and said, oh, the suburbs. And as we <laughs> talked more, she said, you know, after we started working on the project, she said, I think this might need to move into that discomfort of the suburbs. And she was so right. Oh and gosh. that is where we end. And now I can't imagine the book any other way. Yeah, so. <laughs> I had no sense of that at all about the Arctic. Of course I didn't because it's not there. But okay, yeah, I love that you describe your editor as terrifying. Um, that's fantastic. What a compliment. So when you sold the book, so now I understand that you sold it on proposal. And so you sold it with the essays that had already been published as sort of the anchoring material with the promise of more? Yes, I think we sold it with some... Uh, anchoring already published materials, which had not been revised. And then I would say another few essays that were completely new. Uh -huh. So they could see both. Yeah. Yeah. So in your in your section, or I guess essay, I should call it the stone boat, which mm -hmm. is full of excerpts. I mean, everything is full of excerpts I wanted you to read. But there in this very complex essay, uh, you have this conversation about children in art our children in our art, 
the photographer Sally Mann and her use of uh, the naked bodies of her children in her work, and this assertion that art is art and separate maybe from mothering or fathering, not that that's your assertion. And what I really, there's so much I value in this conversation you create in this essay. What I love is the curiosity and self-reflection that you approach it with because it's clear that you have a discomfort with this whole subject and you're, something is gnawing at you, but you really do go through the questions and ask yourself and sort of interrogate this concept. And so I'm wondering how this essay came into being and how you handled any anger or frustration you felt while keeping in mind the curiosity necessary in essays. And if you would like to give a little background, because I know not everyone knows Sally Mann and, you know, what the, the, the reason why you got into this kind of spiral was. Oh, sure. So, right. My mothering is on every page of this book. So it's something that as a writer, I thought a lot about in terms of how to protect my children, but also write honestly. And so in this particular, the reason that I think a lot about that and the point of, or the center of this essay is a portrait that my ex-husband paints of the children. And I hope that it's clear in the book that I adore his work. I think he, many of the paintings that he creates are beautiful. And this particular painting was troubling for multiple different reasons, what what actually arrived on the canvas, which felt like an erasure of the ability of the children to be his children. I know that mm -hmm. doesn't make a whole lot of sense right now, but the idea that when we look at art and when we look at, for example, a, a photograph of Sally Mann's children or her daughter in particular, we're not experiencing that as our daughter uh, that's her relationship that is present or not present in the way that she determines for her own art. What I couldn't divorce myself from was that the children on that canvas were not just his children, but they were my children. And so there's a way that art is experienced just as art, but we mm -hmm. can't, what, what I, the conclusion that I drew was, that it was impossible for me to experience that art as if it was someone else's child. And so I could only try to cover up their naked bodies and soften their mm -hmm. pained faces. And I think with Sally Mann, the, uh, the way I got to that particular discussion was through a discussion with another artist, a theater artist who I worked with in Lancaster and we had similar situations in that she had two boys and their father left and she was working through a lot of her grief over that relationship through theater mm -hmm. and one particular uh, instance of theater that involved her own son and there was this concern that she entered into that process with about how to protect him how to include him, how to create space for him within her art. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you don't need to be an audience member. Uh, it doesn't affect necessarily the audience member, but it will affect the art. It will affect that child. It will affect her both as a playwright and as a mother. And mm -hmm. so I think the hard part is usually in these conversations, we draw a hard line between identities. And what I was realizing is 
if I'm going to have these conversations, I can't divorce myself from my identity as a mother and a writer in the same way that I don't want someone else to divorce. Mm -hmm. I didn't want my, my ex-husband to divorce his relationship to the children that he was painting mm -hmm. um, and to leave space for them for their own experience on the canvas. It's so tough, too, because also Sally Mann, I think, in one of the quotes that you pull, and I remember reading this article. I haven't read her memoir, the memoir that talks about this. Hold Still, I think it is. But there is an article in the New York Times way before I became a memoirist that I read, my husband and I, and I had a lot of you know thoughts about it and reactions because, I mean, I've written articles on the idea of protecting our children you know, from social media and from just sharing widely their experience even that leaves them vulnerable without their choice. And I think one of the assertions she made, Sally Mann, was that it wasn't her kid in that in that moment. She was the artist and it was like the subject. But of mm -hmm. course, that's the that's the part that is the sticking point for me. I mean, that's one of the parts for me personally as a mom. It's the same thing. I agree. My job as a mom is to protect my kids. And so the fury or the frustration or that feeling of being out of control that I, I can imagine someone would feel when they saw another parent or caregiver use the bodies of their children, you know, with good intentions, but in this way that kind of objectifies them, well, no, does objectify them in some sense, whether it's photography or art, it's just, it's very unsettling. I agree. And I think my first drafts of this piece, I knew I wanted to write it. And I needed to figure out how to approach it in a way that was not just <laughs> fueled by anger. Yeah. And and the first few drafts certainly were. Uh, and they weren't working because of that. Mm. And so the idea of the stone moat is really uh, a through line and, and stones in general, right? Just that heaviness mm -hmm. and each word and line, uh, I hope, is given a kind of a weight that is hard to bear, even mm. for the reader and for the writer. And I remember having a discussion with another writer, uh, Joanna Rakoff, who, when we were first getting to know each other, we were just talking about what we were working on. And I was in the middle of this essay and it was tricky. And she listened and she said, but don't you think he made that painting just because he missed them? And it was her ability to build empathy into exactly what you just said, that intention, uh, the intention was, <laughs> was not evil. Uh, and I think that's, once I was able to sort of inhabit that, give that space on the page, I was able to then layer in yes and mm -hmm. the, <laughs> the mm -hmm. exposure and vulnerability that, uh, that comes with sharing those images with the world is a different act. So he was father when he painted it, perhaps, but he was not father when he shared that image with other people. Right. That's so interesting. Yes. And you're both artists. I mean, this is an interesting point because how do you, as a writer, how does one keep oneself accountable or in check or not in check about the way that they're using their children, right? So he, I imagine, I mean, he's an artist. He paints your sons and other mm -hmm. people and you write about your sons and other people. Have you come to sort of an understanding, the two of you, about how to approach this? Are your kids old enough to give any consent yet? I don't know if there is an age that would be old enough as a child to give consent because I'm not sure, even if my parent now was a writer at 47, 
my idea of what is on the page is going to change. <laughs> and so I, I don't know that there is a magic age where a child will understand what they are agreeing to in the relationship. And I think, I think for, for myself, what I help myself to is that, um, often when I would say that I'm writing about divorce or these issues, usually the non-writers especially would say, but, oh my gosh, you know, what about your children? And <laughs> the, you know, first they were, they were there. So they, there's not a whole lot new. The, the, the emotional information of, of how I was feeling might be new to them, but the facts are not new. And I do want, I wrote this memoir hoping that one day when they're ready, they will read it. Mm -hmm. And then maybe 10 years later, they will read it again and get something else out of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the goal to understand that we're not static humans with with only a certain um, understanding of our own experience, the space that they are going to need to move through this story. And they're separate people, right? I have two, each will be different and happen across different points in their life. And I want them to know that they have the space to enter into that story or to never read it and to mm -hmm. never enter back and only rely on their own information and not be a part of that. And that's, and I, I hope that I was able to cloak their identities in a way and protect them in a way that would make that possible as well, if that's their choice. Yes. And, and there is that other um, element of that, you, knowing your children could read this story or people that know your children are going to read the story about their father about mm -hmm. their young life, about your early marriage. It's just a different, if you lived in a vacuum, if we lived in a vacuum or had very few connections, we might write something differently in a different way, right? But we we do have these connections as moms or as people who have to co-parent, et cetera, right? So mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you would like to uh, read an excerpt of your choosing with a little bit of an introduction about where we are in your story. Sure. So I think I'll read from Still Life 2, The Country. This kind of gets to the ways in which a writer can activate emotions and difficult, can access difficult parts on the page through image or sensory detail. There's a lot here that I felt I questioned whether I could write them, write these stories plainly. And so this was my way into some of the violence that happened in, in our life, in our extended country life, not just in our home, but, but where we were to put those things into context and what was happening in our marriage at the time. Mm -hmm. So this is, and, and I will say that there's a, a series of three of these small, almost flash nonfiction pieces that are a bit more lyrical than the other essays. And there's three still lives, and I call them still lives very purposefully because it's my attempt to inhabit the artist's position mm -hmm. of um, creating something on a canvas. So this is still life to the country. There is the father at the easel. There is the mother at the kitchen sink. There are the children in the field, in the tire swing, in the raspberry tangles, hands full of mud, of baking flour, of wildflowers. The outside never shuts off. Soundtrack, the frog opera. Hysterical turkeys. The hard huffs of deer in the woods. The original pranayama. 
the bobcats yowling, coyotes crying, the barn swallows chattering overhead, the clomp of boots on the porch, the plaintive yawn of a screen door springs, the desperate blinks of fireflies. Look at me, look at me, look at me. The sheer quantity of green is like an assault. Spring explodes in new green and sap green and leaf green. Summer is parched and the greens are sucked dry, crumbling into ochres and golds. Autumn is swamp green, heavy, Viridian and Verona. Winter goes slick with glassy jadeite, a mix of cobalt and underwater gray, rare green earth. Through it all, buzzards and hawks make Mars black swirls in the sky, terrifying in their slowness. We are careless. We kill deer with our vehicles, grass with our urine, bees with insecticide. We break lawnmowers and tractors and dryers, sump pumps and generators and swings. We break water pipes, windows, walls with fists. We break promises, confidences, each other's hearts. The day after a surprise storm, I come upon a contractor bucket filled with a few inches of rainwater. There is a bird floating perfectly at the top, flat, with a wing extended, chromatic black like a Carrie James Marshall painting, no eyes, no features, just silhouette. When I look into the water, I am startled. For a moment, the bucket is a wishing well, the dead bird, my reflection, my prophecy. The hills are filled mostly with men, but there are a few women. Red-headed Peg hails from Jersey, tends her donkeys and horses with day-glow rhinestone nails on the property next to ours. She calls her ex-husband, my asshole. When she spurns the affections of a neighbor who tries wooing her with a litter of blocky-headed English labs and country rides in a fumy 4 by 4 gator, he sets up an AR-15 on his porch and squeezes off shots in her direction, staccato valentines. The rat-tat-tat becomes part of our soundtrack. When the shots puncture the night, waking us in our bed, we jolt, then relax. John's just shooting at Peg again, one or the other would say, before rolling over and returning to sleep. The slow dance of tall trees in the wind, the black lace of leaves against a moon-bright night sky, the pulsating yes, 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 no, 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 of the nighttime Katie did mating call, wings rubbing in desperate stridulations the cold slap of the first raindrops of a summer storm, the sky airless and gray like a weathered padlock. This is love in the country. Thank you. <laughs> this is such a, a striking example of the natural world in your work, obviously. And I, I was going to ask you anyway, and, and now you have read this piece, which is, is brimming with it, teeming with it. Do you instinctively notice birds and trees, sand, dampness, these elements that you included in the book throughout? Or do you have to make a concerted effort to infuse your essays with details of the natural world? I think a little bit of both. My first memoir, to answer your son's question, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, that first memoir was about my hometown and it was an environmental memoir. And so throughout my life, I've been, uh, you know, I grew up next to a wildlife refuge uh, and that was an actual refuge for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's And so I've always seen nature as a place for attention, a, a place that is other and that calls for different attention. 
And so for me, especially in this period in my life, when I moved to the country and we were in the middle of <laughs> literally nowhere with, <laughs> you know, <laughs> acres surrounding us and just the natural world, uh, some people would arrive and be really afraid. Um, <laughs> like that makes a lot of people very uneasy. And for me, especially growing or trying to raise two children there and the sort of isolation that's built into having toddlers, mm. uh, we would simply walk out the door and say, okay, what do we notice? What color mm. is the ground? What is this? What is that? And and so it did bring a particular attention in that point of my life. But I would say generally, yes, we do that even, you know, we take a walk around the block and that's that's what we do today too in the suburbs. Mm. Um, a little different, but, but it is also honestly in a way a shield. Um, so I, I was at a um, at an event recently with Ada Calhoun, and she talked about this. I, I called it sort of. I was talking about the slot machine way mm -hmm. of writing an essay when there are three, two or three things that resonate emotionally in the same way, and then even if they're disparate and you don't understand why they're connected, they feel the same, and so you write toward them on the page. And she was saying it's. It's often one of those things might be used, and for me, this is landscape, as a shield uh, in the same way that, you know, there's Medusa. I'm going to put my shield up mm -hmm. so <laughs> I don't have to stare straight at the mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. that I'm writing about. Mm -hmm. And for me, often the hardest things are what I'm drawn to writing about and figuring out because they're full of questions. Mm -hmm. And instead of looking straight at the thing, I will try to filter it through something in the landscape. And that is a very, feels safe for me on the page. Mm -hmm. That's something I hadn't thought about before. The shield, I, I really appreciate that as well as the slot machine analogy. I, I love any kind of tools or tips that I can collect. Uh, so craft wise, on like a nuts and bolts level, what part of essay writing irks you or is the part that you really don't like or any writing actually? Uh, the fact <laughs> that <laughs> I would say right now, uh, well, no, just generally, um, reminding myself, even though I know it and it happens over and over, that writing is about 10% of the job and that 80% is probably revising. Mm -hmm. That's that's hard. That's hard to remember. It's hard to feel like you're doing it right over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I think it is what I I'll flip that and say what I love is that reading is so much a part of the writing. And I love that that's part of my job mm -hmm. <laughs> to read amazing work and then try I in my classes I call it um you know, I call my students liars and thieves and and say that, you know, <laughs> they need to steal, they need to lie on the page and they need to steal from others. And, and I hope that that's my greatest hope is that someone would read a line and want to steal it. They will never, you know, be able to use it exactly the way, but to use, to steal strategies. And, mm -hmm. and that's the most exciting thing as a writer to, to come and every time I start a new page, I have to remember that I've done it before, this will be different, but I can do it again. And I think that mm -hmm. uh, paralysis can be terrifying. 
Well, right. And it doesn't go away. I mean, here you are with these books behind you under your belt and more to come, I'm sure. And it's still a presence, this idea of, oh, gosh, you know, here we go. Right. But we just keep at it. I've been thinking something about, okay, so I think a lot of people have been involved with an artist at some point or have been drawn to an artist in their lives, you know, maybe in a romantic way. And reading your collection, I thought a lot about the artist as a tortured or sexy, mysterious presence whatever mm -hmm. they're, you know, whether they're binary or non-binary and, and the reality, you know, versus the reality of being a work in progress as a human being and, and how work or what the artist creates, including ourselves, can be lauded or gorgeous or, oh, really captivating. But really, so much of what we create might stem from woundedness or even in some cases, you know, stunted emotionally, people who might not have done a lot of work yet, perhaps, depending. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just wanting to talk for a moment about what it's like to know that you used to or still appreciate your ex's art uh, or anyone's art in theory, but know how deeply, you know, know deeply who they might be and the parts of them that, that aren't sexy or romantic or interesting. Right. I think it was interesting for me on the page to have to return to the before times when, when it felt, uh, when I was when I was being drawn toward as opposed to running away from um, that relationship and to re-inhabit myself, right, which is a former self, it's not the person I am today, and understand and still feel that um, being that feeling of being drawn like a magnet mm -hmm. and try and understand that. And the critical distance, of course, helps, right? It's it's many years later. I a lot of um, life has been lived and my priorities have shifted, but especially in your early 20s or mid-20s, you're a completely different person. And one thing I think uh, Catherine Lacey was being interviewed about Autobiography of X on NPR a few months ago, and I perked up as I was making coffee because they said, oh, well, if you have the chance to be with a narcissist, go for it. It's so much fun. And I thought, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> However, they're absolutely right. The energy, the this, the the magnetism, the uh, you know, just the power of being in that glow is so amazing. And it is, I mean, I describe it in the book, sort of like a spotlight. Mm -hmm. And yes, at some point you will wilt from that spotlight. <laughs> but when it first shines on you, it is an incredible feeling. And it's, I, I now understand that one of the things that I found so attractive about him as an artist and him as a person was his desire. Mm. He had desire figured out. He knew what he wanted and he was relentless in pursuing it. Mm. And I knew that I liked writing, but it took him to say, you are a writer for me to believe it. Hmm. And I both thank him and hate him for, <laughs> for mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. for being the person to give that to me. I think that so many of us search for, in, in another essay, I thought a lot about desire, especially with the book Wanting that uh, came out recently with 33 amazing women writing about this idea of female desire in particular, but desire period and the idea that 
mo a lot of women that we went to to write for that collection came back and said, I, I realize I don't even know what I want. <laughs> <laughs> and well, that's so, funny because I was just when I thought about that for a moment, I was like, I don't know what I want. <laughs> right. I mean, so many of us are in that position, especially mothers, especially, you know, people who are in the world in concert with other people and other desires a lot of times in order to get through to move forward, we subvert our own and it's easier to hook onto someone else's. Mm -hmm. And so that is um, a really exciting thing that I think is a through line in a lot of artists and what I think is often universally attractive about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, he's just an initial in your collection. And I'm wondering if you approached your ex about these essays in this book. Did they did your ex have a warning before they went to press or, you know, do you have any thoughts about memoirists who are wanting to write about long term relationship in their books? It's very tricky. I think our relationship is particular and he will likely never read it. And he never really read much of my work. And the work that I would write about him, he often really liked uh, when he was the center. So, uh, surprise. we sort of, yes, yeah, surprise. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we have an understanding that, you know, in the same way that he, it is his purview to uh, tell his own stories on his own canvases in whatever way that he wants to. This is my canvas. Um, this book is about me, not about him. Mm -hmm. And so that's my hope that by doing my best to protect him and again, allow, allowing the space for him to engage in whatever way he wants to or not at all. And that really seems to be the way that he's moving through it, which I'll, I'd like to read as understanding that this is my art and he is able to pursue his art in whatever way he wants to. But I will say that the publishing lawyer <laughs> was very helpful because there are hard lines. And my goal here was never to excoriate him or hurt him in any of these lines. It was really about understanding what happened to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think as long as I followed that, there were clear legal guidelines that I had to follow, which I'm not as concerned with as the moral ones, the ethical mm -hmm. ones for myself and my family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and before I ask you about your favorite memoirs, etc., I'm I wanted to ask you about this quote you write toward the end. I knew there was no way to find my way back to the home I missed. I wasn't sure it ever truly existed in the first place. And this struck me because I often think about what home means, how we make it, how we find it. And I wonder what you've come to understand about what home is for you. I feel like everything I write is about home. <laughs> um, and and I mean that in the best way because it is such a complicated topic. And look, home is the first place where most of us experience love, but it's also the first place where most of us experience pain. And it is a place of conflict. We are often either trying to run away from it or doing everything we can to get back to it. And I think that tension is what makes it such a ripe topic for mm. so many writers. And for me, in this particular, for that quote, I was thinking a lot about uh, fantasy. Home is often a fantasy in the same way that our ideas or my idea of marriage was a fantasy. Mm. And 
what I missed when I was grieving was the possibility. It was the what I thought we could be, not what we actually were. And that was sort of the moment that set me free that I understood. Mm -hmm. It's not that we had something and lost it. It's that we never actually got there. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that. I, I feel so similarly about the idea of home. So what advice do you have for last words you'd like to share with writers working on their memoirs? I would say, especially memoirs that involve other people, whether they are past lovers or, you know, children who are vulnerable, write first without them in mind. Because often the scariest thing in your mind, once you write it down, A, might not actually be that scary, and B, might not even be the point. Mm -hmm. And you might end up cutting that line anyway, and it's what you need to get to after that line that is the actual story. Mm -hmm. And what memoirs uh, have been especially important to you and your work? So many. I would be here for another two <laughs> hours. Uh, <laughs> I know it's so but, hard. Yeah, it's hard. It, oh, it is really hard. I will say for this particular book, some of the works that I went back to again and again were certainly um, Dakota, A Spiritual Geography by Kathleen Norris, which is another essay collection, and also uh, Janice Ray and The Ecology of a Cracker Childhood which just exploded my brain from a sentence level to Mm. the attention that she gave the natural land and poverty and the way those two things mix. Um, More recently, Camille Dungy's Soil, A Black Mm -hmm. Mother's Garden is just one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. And another book that just came out that I have right here in front of me is Martha McPhee's new memoir called Omega Farm. So she's a novelist. And I love when people, I am not a fiction writer. I, I am fully nonfiction, <laughs> but not by choice. I would, I wish that I could write fiction. And it's, I love seeing when fiction writers move to memoir and what they can bring to that. Mm. And I think Martha, Martha McPhee's memoir, Omega Farm, is just, um, just astounding and beautiful. And everything that I love about her fiction is present in that nonfiction too. Ooh, good lessons. I agree with you about that. Fiction to memoir, fiction to nonfiction, strong. Mm. Great. Okay, I'll put those in the show notes. And lastly, where can people find you? Sure. So I am at kellymcmasters.com. I would love if any of your listeners, writers, want to take part in a little project on my website. There's something called uh, the Postcard Project, which has to do with the leaving season. And one of the my most favorite things has been hearing other people's leaving stories, not just about leaving marriages, but leaving anything, leaving your haircut from 1992, leaving a job, (laughs) leaving a place. I I like to hang out on Instagram as well. And that's all on on my website. That's great. Okay, thank you. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And Kelly, thank you for spending this time with me. I just had such a such a great time talking with you. Oh, thank you, Renee. And thank you so much for doing this work. Memoir is so varied, and I love being able to listen to what other writers and the way you lead us through these questions with such grace and care. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T. 
P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here. 